From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Professor Joseph Ibrahim is a professor at the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University, and he specialises in aged care issues. Residential aged care suffered the brunt of the pandemic's first year, with hundreds of deaths among residents. Although it's not getting much publicity at the moment, the sector is currently seeing large numbers of cases and, so far this year, more than 3,000 deaths associated with COVID. Beyond COVID, the aged care system has not been fit for purpose for decades. It's been the object of a great deal of criticism and failed changes for many years. Professor Ibrahim has been a long-term advocate for reform of the sector, and he presented a highly critical picture to the recent Royal Commission on Aged Care. Anthony Albanese had improvements in aged care at the centre of his election agenda. And in office, he's given legislation for reforms a priority in the early parliamentary weeks of the new government. Joseph Ibrahim joins us today to talk about COVID in residential care and the state of the sector more generally. Professor Ibrahim, can we start with the COVID situation in aged care? How serious is it at the moment in residential facilities? Well, thanks, Michelle. If you have a look at the the media coverage, you'd see that there's very little and it would seem that it's it's not a problem at all. In fact, the the number of deaths occurring at the moment are far greater than any time in the last two, three years. We're far better placed than we were in 2020. Um, We've had some shared experiences about managing and learning from others. And the real breakthrough was obviously the vaccine And the most recent one is the use of antiviral medicines, which reduce the severity of illness. These have all brought the situation generally, I think, under control. But what we have is large rates of people having an infection. And so um, we are having more deaths than previously. I think some of the things to point out, and bear with me with the statistics, is that From the government website, we know there's been almost 8,000 outbreaks in aged care homes and 90,000 cases overall. Now, we've got to remember that there's only 2,800 homes, so this would mean virtually every home in Australia has had at least one outbreak. And the total number of deaths in aged care are now around 4,000, so substantially greater than the peak that we saw particularly in Victoria in 2020 when the the number of deaths were around the six to seven hundred mark and so I think that suggests that COVID is a major issue in aged care but it seems to have fallen off the the radar that it's not highlighted and there doesn't seem to be the level of concern that you would have expected. What more do you think should be done in this situation? I think the situation we've ended up with is really this trade-off between uh, the world wanting to get back to normal, which then increases the risk of having outbreaks in communal living, um, which is what aged care homes are. We don't have very much information from the government or the groups or the public health units 
who are working behind the scenes to understand whether they're working at their best and what other options would be possible. I think what I'd like to be seeing is more tailored approaches for each outbreak relative to their circumstances that the one size fits all is no longer appropriate that what we've seen in the past, and I'm not necessarily reassured that we have better understanding and consultation with the staff on the ground and the families and residents about what they need and what is being done. And I refer back to the evidence I gave at the Royal Commission is I would have liked to have seen um, the homes case managed. And so we were clustering homes in groups of 10 or even 30 and having a third party be responsible for oversight of that collection and that person would also be able to negotiate with um, general practice and the public hospitals about what services were needed and families would have a impartial third party to go to with their concerns rather than the situation as it stands. Now you spoke of trade-offs Obviously, uh, families and residents don't want to go back to a completely closed situation or nearly closed situation where you get other problems, the problems of isolation, which can end up greater than the problems of COVID. So are you saying we're getting the trade-offs wrong or are you saying that we just need a a situation where there are more connections and, and oversights and speed of response? It's the latter that we, we need better oversight and a response that's more tailored. No one wants to return back to the levels of social isolation and the, the lockdowns, which had detrimental impacts on uh, residents' uh, physical and mental health. I think situations need to be tailored according to the size of the home, the number of people that are living there, how many have had the vaccine and had the boosters and also what what are the staff dynamics. And I think that we're, we're in a situation where some places might need stricter rules and others um, may be able to be more lenient depending on their circumstances. Let's turn now to aged care more generally. The Royal Commission, which painted a a dark picture of the sector, produced some 150 recommendations thereabouts. What was done by the former government and what was left undone by that government? Well, the... The former government has essentially accepted a large number of the recommendations, which provides a false reassurance to the community. What they left undone were the most substantive changes to reform the system, which is increasing staffing, increasing staff training and mandating it, addressing the funding issues and addressing the the role of regulation and how that would work. They also left off the issue really around transparency. And I think fundamentally, they left the discriminatory practices in place uh, against older people and people with dementia. Labor's promised nurses around the clock in facilities, more staff, face time with residents, better food in aged care homes and more accountability. Given the difficulty, however, of getting staff, How much can it do and how quickly can it do it? 
Well, without fundamental changes and and a fundamental rethink about what we ought to do, it's going to be slow and it's unlikely to be completed. I just want to highlight that the the idea of having a nurse 24-7 is 21 shifts a day, which is equivalent to five full-time nurses for one to cover that. And with approximately you know, 3,000 homes, we would need 15,000 new nurses just to have one nurse in every facility 24-7. Now, this doesn't change the fundamental culture of the organisation or address the underlying qualifications of the large number of personal care workers, nor does it address the gap in training and knowledge about managing persons with dementia. So what we have is it makes for a terrific soundbite. It's certainly a little bit better than what we have, but it's not a solution. Do we need the 24-7 nurses or not? That's a really good point to debate. I've always advocated that we should staff according to what's needed though that's a very difficult concept to get across politically and to the community. The notion of having um, a nurse 24 hours a day is far more easy to understand and far easier to measure whether it's there. And so from that point of view, I'm supportive of that with the reservations that this does not solve the problems that we have in aged care. How do you get more staff into the sector? Because uh, obviously the, the shortage is acute and and huge. To what degree will more migrants help this? And what are the issues in getting more locals into the workforce? Is it low pay or are there other disincentives as well? I think you've hit the nail on the head with the, the low pay. I personally think the fundamental problem is the lack of respect for the staff that work in aged care. And we saw how they were treated differently to healthcare professionals working in hospitals during the pandemic, that their pay is less, their career path and trajectory is also uh, not very well consolidated. They do not have support to undertake additional training that's needed. And the work in aged care is one of the most complex and hardest areas to work in because you need to be, in a sense, all things to all people. I think the first step is to recognise that it is a professional role and that the personal care workers need to have a mandated level of training and skill and that their pay and award rates reflect that and that we have a culture that is positive about working in aged care. Reflecting on migration as the solution is very misleading in that looking overseas to solve a problem um, that is of our own making and which we could address internally doesn't make sense to me. It also has an ethical dimension is that the people we're often asking to migrate are coming from countries which already have a shortage of their own health professionals. You've been strong on the question of the rights of people who are residents in aged care and that this isn't uh, recognised or these rights aren't respected enough. So apart from various reforms flagged, how can we improve the quality of life 
for those living in these residential facilities? I think this is a question to reflect back to the listeners and, and the fundamental premise is, can you imagine yourself living there for a week? And what would it take for you or I to say, I would be happy to spend a week there? How should that be structured? And that's what we should be addressing. At the moment, what we do is we set up things that are essentially economically viable and not be too concerned about what it's like to live there. And we expect the residents to be grateful because we provide this service and we tend not to listen to them because they're old or we don't listen to them because we say they have dementia and therefore they can't give us a reasonable answer, which is also incorrect. And it's really about um, the fundamentals of what we want for ourselves and to be asking ourselves, is that there in residential aged care? Can I connect with family and friends? Can I go out when I need to? Will there be someone there to help me shower when I want to shower? Will someone help change me if I'm soiled or incontinent in a timely manner? Can I trust the people to be there when I need them? Are some very basic sort of principles. It, it, it's not very complicated what needs to be delivered, but we tend not to address those fundamental needs of what we want as a person for ourselves and others. More and more people want to stay at home as long as possible as they get older. Are we keeping as many people at home as as we could and what more needs to be done? We have heard a lot about the shortages of the home care packages, for example. I don't think we're keeping people at home um, for as, as long as we could. Um, there's obviously the cost and I guess the, the duty we owe to others about their care. The you know, both governments have um, addressed and increased the amount of support packages available. The issue with that is the package may be available, but the staff aren't there to deliver on what's within that package. And I think people want to stay at home because they're fearful of going into residential care. Um, and so residential care isn't seen as an option. It's seen as the last resort. Um, developing better home care requires greater integration of our own way of living in terms of as a society or community. And the worrying trend is that uh, many local government councils are now ceasing or planning to cease the provision of home-based care, reducing even further the ability to help people stay at home. So what do we do about this? Well, I think this comes back to understanding that we all will age. If we're lucky, we'll all get old. And that when we get old, we don't get to choose necessarily whether we're going to be fit and well or we're going to need support. And so in the same way we support wanting a good education or a good health system, we want to support having a good aged care system. We want a system that we would be willing to use when we're older, not fearful of it. And so that's going to require both investment, financial investment, and an underlying commitment to make sure the system works, which requires us to be far more politically active and to have a far greater social conscience. You and others are talking about the need for big structural changes in the sector more than just particular, more immediate reforms. 
Can you outline how you think we should restructure the aged care system? Will people need or should they be paying more for their care if they can afford it? Would a special levy, which was raised in the Royal Commission report, be a way to go? What would be the desirable changes over, say, the next five, ten years, in your view? I think that the the biggest fundamental step we should take is, can we consider a world where there are no aged care homes? And we ask that question, say, what would that look like? And when we start to address the question is, why do we have these institutions to provide care? What are the other alternatives? And then once we capture the imagination to say, we can all live to a ripe old age, being able to do the things that we want, the issue about financing becomes secondary. When we put the argument about we need more money, people immediately worry that this is going to increase taxes and I will get no benefit. I think we've got to reimagine what being older and being an older person with disability requires. We are going to need money, but we are a rich country. Like how much money can you spend? And being able to share that equitably. And I, I think there are substantial economic reforms that could be done that don't necessarily rely on the individual's contribution. And we go back here to why do the multinationals pay so little tax? Why is there such a big differential between the the haves and the have-nots and that, that sort of social and financial inequity could be addressed politically and we would then have far more money to spend on the social needs, which makes the community better off than we currently have in the world today. And, and this, this applies across most Western countries. So if we put aside this question of money, we assume that there are more resources. Precisely what would that world look like? Well, I think in terms of resources, human resources are, are the fundamental thing here. And it is possible to recruit, retain people to work in aged care because it is a highly rewarding career and in an ability to serve and provide for others gives you a a much greater sense of satisfaction or purpose to life and is in fact the fundamental of why many people take up nursing as a professional vocation. So I think it's there, it's the barriers around people don't get the respect, they're not given the training that they need to maintain currency. There aren't enough people in the job to make it comfortable for you to go to work and be confident that you'll be able to do your best. And I think that we've got to address the shortage of staff. And I think once you address the shortage of staff, there's no longer an issue around building or retaining. And we know the mechanisms to address shortages in the workforce, and they're often uh, multi-pronged. And you know, it's it's a collection of being flexible, remuneration, and other rewards associated with it, and being able to create an environment that people want to stay. We we know how to do that in other industries. We just haven't really spent the time and effort as a nation to address it in aged care. 
but are you also saying we wouldn't have nursing homes as we know them? I, I'm saying we should be thinking now that we shouldn't be having nursing homes at all. And and I, I throw the comment back in terms of, you know, do we believe that orphanages are a good way to look after children who have fractured family or who don't have parents? So if we don't have nursing homes, what would we have? Well, I think you then end up with models that are very similar to um, disability services. The NDIS is that you might have small communal housing that might have five to 10 people in them. Um, you have increased home care packages uh, so a person can remain in their own home or that there are design changes around uh, what you do when you get to 60, 70 or 80 in terms of downsizing and moving into a home that is more likely to, to meet your needs. I, I think um, there's also shared communal housing with people of different ages and different needs as possible. I, I think we've been very lazy in just relying on aged care homes as a solution. So we've picked a lazy solution and we're doing it badly. If you're talking about, say, shared homes, shared houses with uh, just a handful of people, that sounds really more appropriate for non-government organisations or the government sector than the for-profit sector, doesn't it? I think so. And I think this is, again, the the challenge here is, you know, are we going to think about aged care as a social good or social necessity or are we going to continue to treat it as a, you know, a private for-profit area, a free market zone? And it's clearly not a free market zone and hasn't ever been structured as a free market that delivers on the side of the resident and family. So we should be moving it from the the for-profit sector more to the not-for-profit sector, which of course is already involved. I think that there needs to be more government involvement. I think that the debate about for-profit and not-for-profit can be a little misleading that the performance of some of the not-for-profits is not exemplary, while some of the private for-profits are able to do an extraordinarily good job. I think what's missing is that as a society and government, we haven't placed a cap on how much profit is reasonable to take out of a human service and how do we regulate to achieve a true minimum standard and what are the rewards for being an exemplary performer? How do they get rewarded? And, and so that those sort of economic sanctions and rewards, I don't think, are very well framed or balanced. And we're arguing about what we do, but we are rarely presented with a generic model or co or true costing of what it would be to run an aged care home and then have that discussion about should these be all government run in the same way that we respect uh, our public hospitals. So should they be all government run? Well, I think that they should be well run. And my question then is, if they're not currently being well run, I'd be favouring that it needs to look to more government ownership and oversight or better partnerships to maintain that, that tension. I'm sure many listeners will point to examples where the government has failed in these areas. And so it's very hard to make a blanket statement that they should all be owned by one or the other. 
what what I'm a hundred percent convinced of is we have a free market model which has failed and was never a free market, and it's delusional to keep arguing that the free market will sort things out. Just finally, we obviously have in Annika Wells a, a new minister in the aged care area. What advice would you give to her in managing this portfolio, at least in the immediate term? Well, my advice would be to seek as many different voices and opinions as possible that the existing structures and people in senior roles have often been there for many years. And I believe there's considerable groupthink that occurs um, within the aged care sector at a federal level, which reduces any possibility of true innovation or challenging the status quo. And I, I think that getting out to talk to residents and their families and having that far better coordinated and structured would give insights that are not going to be provided by senior people who are usually able and uh, well off to, to reflect on what's truly happening in the sector. Are you talking about the federal bureaucracy, the federal regulator? Uh, do you think that they're somewhat hidebound? Uh, yes, yes, I do. I, I think it goes beyond that. I think that if you look at the structures, the advisory groups that there are many people that have been in those groups for many years and we tend to be relying on the same groups of people and they're moving in the same circle. So they, they tend to know each other's strengths and limitations. And I think that the debates tend to be far too polite in the sense of people are looking to agree to go in one direction rather than to dissect a problem with um, divergent views and then to pick the best solution rather than the solution that is acceptable to all. Professor Ibrahim, thank you very much for sharing today your insights, uh, your knowledge, your views on this very difficult and challenging area. And that's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.